to me a couple weeks ago. Uh, it was from msn.com, which I didn't know still existed. Uh, Windows has been out of date for about two decades, I think, but uh, it's still one of the more frequented websites on, on the internet, apparently. And this article was called, Why I Stopped Going to Church Even Though I Still Believe in Jesus and Love God. And I've read a lot of these articles in the past years. It's kind of my generation's thing, you know? Down with institutions! Burn it to the ground! But I'm still a nice person and I recycle. You know, that's kind of like, that's my, that's my generation. Uh, so I've read a lot of these, and a lot of them, it's, it's, it's understandable. People have experienced hypocrisy. They have, uh, they have experienced dysfunctional, unhealthy churches. And so they're kind of saying, I'm, I'm done with it. This article was not that. This article, I will tell you, was probably the weakest of these articles I've ever read, which made me makes it unfair for me to pick on it this morning, but that's what we're doing. So uh, the number one, so she gave three reasons, 20-something-year-old woman, she gave three reasons. One reason she stopped going to church, even though she would still say she's a Christian, is because she didn't like feeling as though she had lost her rights. So her Hispanic mother really wanted her to go to church. She said, I, she said, I don't like feeling pressured to go, so I'm just not going to go at all. That was number one. Number two is that she didn't like feeling tired on Sundays. This is, this is her whole reason, and I quote, I did not like waking up early on Sunday. It's called a day of rest for a reason. <laughs> like, did you not, can you not find an 11 o'clock service, like an evening service? Like, what? what's this one about? <laughs> And then the third reason, which was, she said this was by far the most serious one, this is the one that really drove her, was that she, uh, she didn't like feeling socially isolated. And again, that one too, you can kind of understand how somebody might feel like if they are, you know, friendships cut off and people look at you very badly if you're associated with the church. It's not, it's not, it's not justified, but you can understand why somebody would say, well, I just don't want to, I don't want to have that connection in my life. That wasn't really the case for her though. For her, she said that, that she just discovered that her non-religious friends just weren't as excited as her about these things, that when she talked about Christian faith, that she felt like other people kind of didn't want to delve into that, and that made her feel discouraged. And, uh, and so that was enough, apparently, to sever her connection with the church. Now, I hope that that level of superficial commitment is rare. However, I know that in... In the evangelical church, in the last couple of generations, we have really downplayed the inevitability of hardships in following Jesus. We've downplayed the cost of discipleship. Even a couple months ago, when I preached on being all in for Jesus, that this is the calling of Jesus. If you follow him, you take up your cross, you die to yourself, you follow him. And for some people, it was like, even though they had been in church for a long time, it was like the first time they'd ever heard that. And maybe it was. We haven't, we haven't made this a really central point when we speak about Christian faith. I think about the, the popularity of the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, that tells you that God will reward your faith with increases in material blessings. He will make you healthy. He will make you wealthy. His desire for you is to live a comfortable, easy, luxurious life. I mean, something like 40% of American evangelical churches preach along these lines, something along the lines of the prosperity gospel. There's a lot of people who are disappointed in the end, except for the preachers, because the preachers get wealthy. They're not, they're not driving 2008 Hyundai accents, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> so maybe that's, you know, Carolyn wants a yacht someday. I've told her the only way that's going to happen is if I take a hard turn into prosperity theology. 
<laughs> I'm not doing that though, so no yacht for Carolyn. Um, <laughs> but that's kind of, uh, that's the direction a lot of Western Christianity has gone. We're like allergic to hardship. I want you to take that kind of survey, that intro, and I want you to hold it in your minds as we look at Acts 14. I want you to compare it with what we see in Acts 14. Uh, we've been going through the book of Acts. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas, uh, they're in Lystra. We talked about this last week where they uh, are instrumental in heal. God uses them to heal a lame man. And the crowds of the city of Lystra want to offer sacrifices to them, believing that they're gods. And Paul, and, and well, Paul, Paul especially, preaches the sermon that points them away from idolatry, points them to the living God. And this is, this is what we, uh, we read in verse 19, right after their little, their little sermon. So if you've got it, Acts 14, verse 19. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the gospel in that city, and they won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith for the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So at the beginning, they're, they're in Lystra and uh, things are going well until some crowds come. They're, they're, Paul's Jewish opponents from Iconium and from, from Pisidia and Antioch and they, come, they travel hundreds of kilometers because it's not enough that they've expelled Paul from their city. You know how like the unofficial slogan of North Vancouver is NIMBY, right? Like not in my backyard. This is NIAB. This is not in any backyard. It's not, as, it's not as catchy, but that's the mentality here. It's not enough to not have Paul here. We can't have him anywhere. And so they're this devoted. You got to give them to the, you got to give this to them. They're this devoted that they travel hundreds of kilometers to stir up this city against Paul. And they succeed. They whip up this frenzy, they drag him outside, they pelt him with stones until they think that he's dead, and then, and then they go. They, they go back to the city. They figure they've dealt with this problem, right? Nailed it! Except not, <laughs> because Paul, Paul gets right back up. The next day, he seems to be doing quite well, because he starts a 100-kilometer trek on foot to Derby, so they really didn't do the job. They come to Derby and they preach the gospel and, and make a lot of disciples. And there's no note of any opposition, presumably because uh, all of those, all of their opponents, you know, they're they're like you know like bad movie villains who uh, who think that they've killed the hero, but they don't bother on check to check on the body. You know, they're just like, yeah, he's dead for sure, and they just walk away. But the hero's totally alive still. That's these guys. They didn't check. And so Paul and Barnabas could go to Derby unhindered, preach the gospel there. 
And then they, they start to retrace their steps. They go, they go back through all those places where they had preached the gospel. They're strengthening and encouraging believers. They're establishing new leaders. They're establishing elders in those churches. They are entrusting them to the Lord. And this is a little word here for those who are maybe empty nester parents who have sent their kids off to university. You, you've, you've raised them, you've brought them to a point, and now you're not gonna be with them hands-on anymore, right? They're, they're off there on their own. You can still send messages, call. You know, you're, you're still in contact, but you're not with them in the same way. You have to entrust them to the Lord. That's, that's what you have to do as a parent, right? At a certain point, you go, okay, they're in God's hands now. <laughs> Lord, do what you, you do what you will in their lives. It's kind of what they're doing with these, these new disciples. Uh, they, they end up coming uh, all the way through Perga. Uh, they even seem to plant a new church there. They're not, even though they're on their way back, they're not finished uh, new, new work. They're, they're preaching to people who haven't heard it before. And then they sail to, uh, to their home, to the place where they were sent, from where, from where they were sent, uh, Syrian Antioch. And they report all the things that God had done. In, uh, in their trips here, all the ways in which God had opened the door to the Gentiles for faith. And, and I could just imagine how joyful this would have been for the people of Syrian Antioch. How joyful it would be to know you sent these guys, you took a, a, a leap of faith for them to break brand new ground and for them to come back and say, guys, you wouldn't believe what happened. You wouldn't believe how God did more than we could have asked or imagined. How many people were, were brought to faith in Jesus? It was incredible. The same things God had done in Antioch. In revealing himself to the Gentiles, he has done all over the place. See, this is, this is what happens when you are part of the body of Christ. That you rejoice, that you're filled with joy at things that happen, even if it's not in your context. So for us, as a church, we want to rejoice when we hear about churches that are baptizing new believers where there's gospel growth, even if it's not in our church. We're not in competition with each other. We're all seeking the same kingdom end. It's why we're filled with joy when we hear how the Holy Spirit is working in places like Southeast Asia or South America because, again, we're one body of Christ. It fills us with joy. We're going to get a glimpse of that next week, actually. Um, Renee and Sarah Bruel are uh, a Brazilian couple who were with us at the bridge many years ago. They're studying at Regent, and they were involved in youth ministry here at the bridge. And, uh, and they had this, this vision and this calling to plant a church in Rome, Italy. And so they shared that, that vision, that calling. The bridge came around them, supported them, sent them. Ten years ago, Renee and Sarah planted Chiesopera, that's, yeah, that's pretty good, right? Is that pretty, that's, I worked on that one, that Italian accent. Uh, they planted this church. <laughs> uh, and, and they have been seeing scores of these post-Christian secular Italians coming to faith in Jesus, being baptized. Next Sunday, Renee is going to be here in person. He's going to be preaching here at the bridge. He's going to be sharing a report about what God has been doing in and through them there in Rome. And I guarantee you, we are going to be encouraged. We're going to be filled with joy at what God is doing in other places. And that we've even been able to play a small part in that, right? So, so back, to, back to the text. I, I kind of skipped over a detail, and I, I wonder if you caught it, because it's quite astounding, actually. Uh, if you look at the map, let's, uh, let's look at this map again. This has kind of been the map that we've been following. You see Derby right there kind of in the middle where the red and the blue 
kind of meet. And, and Derby is, is kind of the furthest east they end up on this trip, right? That's where we started this morning. Now, from Derby, you look to the next city to the right is Tarsus. Tarsus is Paul's hometown. And it is about a week's journey away from Derby. It's not very far. Uh, well-traveled roads, pretty secure roads. It's not, not a problem to get to Tarsus. And then, if you look, the next city to the right there is Antioch. That's, that's their home church. That's where they've been sent from. That's another week or so. So we're talking about a two-week journey from Derby to go back home. They've been spending who knows how long on the road, so many inconveniences, living this nomadic lifestyle, and now they're at the end of their journey and they could just keep going. Two more weeks on the road and they could be home. They could be soaking in their hot tub, checking up on local sport, on, on uh, recent events, you know, sports events, all that. They could just be at home in two weeks. But what do they do? They go backwards. And not only is this so inefficient, but do you remember what happened in those places? I mean, the first place they go back to is Lystra. You remember what happened in Lystra? They, they stoned Paul. They thought he was dead. In Iconium, the next city, there was a plot to stone Paul. They got out of there before it could happen. The next city, Pisidian Antioch. You know what happened there? They kicked Paul and Barnabas out of the city. These are not places where they're coming back to and they're throwing parades. Hey, Paul and Barnabas are back. Everybody celebrate. Like they are not wanted in these places by the population as a whole. That doesn't stop them. That's what they do. They go backwards. They retrace their steps. Why would they do that? And the answer simply is that there is something so much more important, something that drives them so much more than their own comfort or ease or safety. In this, in this world where, in this Western world, where it feels like safety is an ultimate value for Paul and Barnabas, it really wasn't. There's something so much more important to them than that. See, for Paul and Barnabas, it wasn't enough just to plant and start a bunch of churches. It wasn't enough to get a whole bunch of converts, to rack up the numbers. Some of you maybe are familiar with mass evangelism in Western society over the last couple of generations, right? These big events, and it wasn't all bad, but these big events, you get all these people coming forward, hundreds of people coming forward, making a decision, but in the worst, you know, in, in, the, in the not so good aspects, there wasn't always a lot of uh, follow-up. wasn't a lot of discipleship. You're just making, making decisions, and then, hey, great, we can go on to the next place. Paul and Barnabas are deeply invested, not in making converts, but making disciples, and so they go back through there and their whole heart is to form resilient followers of Jesus who will be faithful to him in a world where so much is stacked against them. And so they equip and teach these, these new believers. They set up leaders in these churches, structures that will enable growth. They encourage them. They are willing to risk their own safety in order to see these new believers build deeper roots. You get this sense that this is Paul's, this is the very core of his heart, in even a passage like 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul lists all kinds of tribulations and trials he's gone through. It's like, I was I was flogged so many times. I was imprisoned. I was deprived of food. I was deprived of shelter. All of that. You know what he tops it all off with? You know what he, what he ends that list with? He says, besides all of this, I face daily 
the pressure of my concern for all the churches. That was what was so heavy on his heart. Were these churches that, that God had used him to form, how are they doing? Because, you know, I can get, as the pastor of this church, I feel that, that, that concern for the bridge. I have this deep ownership and investment in you. I want to see you grow. I want to see us grow. I can only imagine for Paul, a man greater than I, and, and with so many churches that he was responsible for. So again, it didn't matter what kind of opposition, persecution he was going to face. He needed to go and to disciple and equip these people. And, and the fact that he did that has everything to do with the message that he left these churches. I don't know if you've caught that. But Luke, who writes the book of Acts, tells us that as, as he went through the churches... These, these, these cities, that, that he left them with, with a message. There was a, like a central thing that he wanted to leave them with. And I wonder what that would be for you. Like if you think about, maybe it's a child, maybe it's somebody else. If you were, were going to not see them for a period of time, what's the one thing you would want to impress on them? The one thing, I, it's like, I, I don't want you to forget this thing. You know, I feel like when I, was, when, I, when I left home, it was probably something like, don't wash your white clothes with your brand new red ones or something like that. You know, that might have been the number one thing my mom wanted to leave me. Craig, don't do that. Anything else, just don't do that. What would be the number one thing? Did you catch what it was for Paul and Barnabas? Here, here's the message they leave them with. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. That's the number one thing they left them with. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Let's just say again how incredibly countercultural this is. How many churches today make that a central point in their teaching? That this is the thing you need to understand as believers. I mean, I know I'm trying to do that a little bit with our kids. You know, our kids go to Christian school. They're part of the church. There's a lot that's kind of sheltering them right now. But I'm telling them, look, when you are a follower of Jesus, you are going to go against the flow. You're not going to fit in this world. We often have not done this, though, as churches, right? We've, we've tried to kind of smooth all the rough edges. We've tried to preach these messages about good feelings and five tips to a happy life. And we've got 20-something-year-olds declaring that waking up at 9 a.m. is an unattainable and unreasonable ask on a Sunday morning. This is, this is countercultural. This is New Testament Christianity. This is what we need to rediscover. So let's, let's, let's go back over this, this phrase. Let's, let's break this down a little bit. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. What, first of all, what is the kingdom of God? Uh, kingdom of God is not a political government or state. It's not America. There was any ever idea that, that America is actually, you know, like a Christian like country and kingdom. Let's just throw that out the window right now. It's not America. It's not Israel. It's not Ukraine or Russia. It's not, it's not a political government. The, the, reign, the, the kingdom of God, to put it shortly, is the kingly rule of Jesus made manifest. It's where things are as they should be, where God's reign is, is kind of full, fully realized. And, uh, and in one sense, in the scriptures, that will only come at the end of history, at the beginning of eternity. John, in Revelation 21, he says that he saw the old heaven and old earth passing away, and he saw a new heaven 
and a new earth, and that every tear was wiped away, that sin and death and evil were wiped away. Uh, he, he saw that, that God's people, the citizens of the kingdom, would be, would be those who remain, and they would rule with Jesus forever and ever. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul sees that the citizens of the kingdom will be raised with imperishable bodies when Jesus comes again. That God will put all things under his feet and that he will be all in all. The picture of the Bible is that at the end of history, the beginning of eternity, is when God's reign is fully realized. Do you not long for that? That, that, that place, that reality, when everything is as it should be, when, when justice and righteousness and goodness is, is the rule, is, is just kind of like there, there's no exception to that. Don't you long for that? You thirst for it. And the good news of the New Testament is that this kingdom has broken into the present. So it's not only something we look at in the future, but something that has come to us now. So this is Jesus' message. Jesus goes around and he tells people the kingdom of God is here. It's in your midst. It's broken in and it's broken in through him. He is the kingdom of God embodied. Everywhere Jesus goes, things are as they should be in and through him, right? When you see people being healed, when you see the dead being raised, this is a glimpse of the kingdom of God. It's, it's breaking in. When you see the brokenhearted bound up and, 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 and comforted, when you see people turning from sin and following him, you're seeing the kingdom of God breaking in. And we see that here today as well. We see that in, in our time. It's not just when Jesus walked the earth in the, in the flesh. It's as his Holy Spirit has been poured out on the church. So when we're here gathered together as his people, worshiping and praying and seeking his face. We're seeing the kingdom of God, that eternal reality breaking into the present. When we see Christians filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking and doing things that are from Jesus, we are seeing the kingdom of God breaking in. When we see people being healed and relationships being restored, reconciliation taking place, we are seeing the future breaking into the present. This is the kingdom of God. It is this, it's this reality of God's reign that is both future as well as present. It's already and it's not yet. It's coming and yet it has already come and it has already been inaugurated in Jesus. It's kind of both of these things. And so when Paul talks about entering into the kingdom, I think he means both of these things as well. He's talking about this is how you ensure your participation in that eternal reality when God's kingdom comes in its fullness, but this is also how you experience and glimpse that inbreaking kingdom right now. You're entering into the kingdom now as well as in eternity. And he says you do this through hardship. Now the Greek word there, you're going to learn a Greek word today. Are you excited for this? So exciting. Flipsis. Can you say that with me? Flipsis. It's a little flip, flip, flipsis. <laughs> I'm going to use that word a bit today. Because it ends up getting translated in a bunch of ways. Troubles, sufferings, afflictions, tribulations, hardship. A lot of times when you read that word in your English Bible, it's the Greek word flipsis. He says it's through flipsis that you enter the kingdom of God. He says it's through these things. Now, flipsis, by the way, the idea there is, uh, one, one commentator said it's like, um, it evokes this image of someone being slowly crushed to death by a boulder. 
It's just a super delightful image, isn't it? It's, that's just, that's beautiful. The point is that it's, it's, it's pressure. That's the point. It's, it's pressure. It's pressure that comes when two opposing forces meet. So when the kingdom of God breaks into the world, you have the kingdom of God coming up against the kingdom of this world, and there's, there, there's inevitably pressure. There's thlipsis. There's this affliction. And, uh, and, and Daryl Johnson says that actually the, the more faithful you are to Jesus, the more affliction there is, the more thlipsis there is, the more pressure ends up emerging from that. Paul says that to enter the kingdom of God, you have to go through hardship. So you don't go around hardship, which is actually, if you think about it, what a lot of our culture and society is based on, isn't it? going around hardship. I mean, how, how, how much of our entertainment industry is driven by this? You've had a tough day. You don't want to think about it. You go home, you veg out in front of Netflix for a couple of hours, right? It's going around hardship. How, how, many, how many people don't want to deal with the mess of their lives and so they end up in addiction to pornography, to alcohol, to drugs, even to video games. It's an escape. It's around. It's a way around hardship. How much of social media even is this? People living fake lives, portraying fake lives because they don't want to bring the, the reality of their lives into the open. It's going around hardship. And you will never enter the kingdom of God. You will never glimpse the goodness of God's reign if you are devoted to going around hardship. Nate and I are reading a book by an Australian pastor. He talks about how in Australia... It's a very affluent, beautiful country. But basically everybody lives on the coast. Uh, but, but the reason they have that affluence and that beauty is because of what lies inland under the deserted places. Australia is rich in natural resources. And to get, to get those natural resources, to make the most of them, people actually have to go into the desert. And so he says, to get the gold, you've got to go into the wilderness. And that's Paul's whole point here. To get the gold of God's kingdom, you've got to be willing to go into the wilderness, into those desert places. You've got to be willing to, to go through hardship. And Paul says, we must. Now that's a, that's a question. Why must this be? Why has God so ordered things that this is the inevitable result? Let's talk about that for a little bit. Um, there's a few reasons. One is that when we read about going through hardships to enter the kingdom of God, we actually should read this through the lens of Jesus. That our entry into the kingdom of God is actually Jesus, and particularly his hardships, his afflictions, his troubles, is our entry into the kingdom of God. If you've read the Gospels or if you've watched The Passion of the Christ— you might remember the kinds of things that happen in the last day before the crucifixion, how Jesus is, he's, he's mocked, he's spit on, he's, he's hit, he's falsely accused, crown of thorns forced on his head, his friends betray him. And then to top it all off, he's on the cross and the one sinful, sinless man, the one righteous man, fully represents sinful humanity and experiences separation from God the Father. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the greatest affliction you could possibly imagine. To be, to be cut off 
from God's presence and his care. And that's what the sinless son of God experiences on the cross. Affliction that I would argue nobody has ever faced before. And what we as Christians believe is that Jesus did this. He went through that hardship for you and for I. First Peter 1, sorry, First Peter 3, Peter says, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He's righteous. He suffered. He suffered in our place so that we who are unrighteous, who aren't in right relationship with God, could be brought into right relationship with God. It is through his hardships that we enter into the kingdom of God. But he doesn't, Jesus doesn't promise us that just because he suffered for us to make us right with God, that our lives are going to be easy and comfortable, does he? He actually says to the disciples in John 16, he says, you will have trouble. You know what the Greek word is? You got it. Oh, you guys are going to be good at this. It slips this. He says, you will have it. It's a promise. He doesn't say you might. You might. You guys, I'm sorry to tell you, you might. He says, you will. You will absolutely have troubles. You will have flipsis. That will happen. And on one level, that's because when you follow Jesus, the calling is, again, to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. You are dying a death to all of these things that you once lived for, that were once so near and dear to you, the things that defined you, that defined so many people in the world. You're dying to those things and living for Christ. You've discovered something better, but there's still, as one song says, there's still pain in the offering. There's still a death. And there's going to be part of you that still wants to hold on to some of those things. The Bible calls this a battle against the flesh. This is your flesh. And it's an ongoing reality that there is this, this pressure in your own life, in your own heart, between these forces. And when you do that, when you follow Jesus, when you, when you take up the cross and you die to yourself, it also makes you a marked man or woman in Satan's eyes. We actually do believe that Satan is real. He's not a Halloween character to be trifled with, but he's real. And, and we believe that he actually is, is immensely interested in stealing, killing, and destroying among humanity, as the Bible says, and particularly to destroy the relationship between Christians and their God. We read in Revelation 12. This was a passage I preached on last Christmas. It was one of the weirder Christmas sermon series I think anyone's ever experienced. Uh, Revelation 12, Christmas is war! If you want to go back and look at that. Uh, Revelation 12 depicts uh, a, a dragon and a serpent, kind of interchangeably, that represents, that represents Satan. And this, this dragon or this serpent wants to devour the Messiah. That's what he really wants to do, but he's not able to. And so instead, he, he chases the, what I would understand to be the people of Jesus into the wilderness. And the, the serpent, we read in Revelation 12, spews out of his mouth a, a water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. So the serpent is trying to drown the people of Jesus with a stream of deceit and lies and temptation. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I certainly have. I have these moments where all of a sudden I just get these waves of accusatory thoughts, uh, self-loathing kinds of thoughts where I'm almost cast into despair. 
where, where I'm just, I've got all of these, these, these thoughts about how worthless I am or whatever, and, and I'm starting to finally realize and learn where these come from and how to stand firm in Christ. But, but there's affliction there. there there's, there's thlipsis. There's this pressure that comes where Satan is trying to destroy us, planting thoughts that aren't from God in us. It also makes us a marked man or woman in the world. Because if you are not willing to march by the beat of the same drummer as the world, to live by the same values or lack of values in the world, and people don't take kindly to that, right? Rebels, nonconformists. Actually, Christians are always supposed to be rebels and nonconformists. Not just because you have like spiky hair and tattoos everywhere, but because, because you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. You are no longer uh, loyal to the ways of thinking in this, this world. For example, uh, as Christians, if you, if you hold to a high standard of, of sexual morality, that in itself is enough to, uh, to cause affliction, to cause that thlipsis, that pressure in our world where people say, how dare you believe those things? How dare you say those things? There's this thlipsis. Paul says, in, uh, he writes to, to Timothy, the second letter to Timothy, and uh, he actually talks about these, these trials that he endured in these chapters and acts. He says to Timothy, who is from Lystra, by the way, so, so Timothy had witnessed some of the things that happened to Paul. He says to Timothy, you know what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So Paul says, you know the things that happened to me. Well, I've got news for you. Something like that is going to happen to you too. See, whether it's the flesh or the world or the devil, if you follow Jesus faithfully, you are going to come up against hardship and tribulation and affliction. I read one, uh, one quote. You know how every, every follower of Jesus, we believe, has a mission. A mission and a gifting to make Jesus known in the world. To reflect his character to others. And uh, I read this quote that said that every form of mission leads to some form of cross. It may not be an actual cross. It probably won't be. It probably won't be people trying to stone you to death. It probably won't be that. But in one way or another, the promise of the scriptures is that you will come across tribulation as a follower of Jesus. You need to know that. You need to expect it. You need to be willing to go through it, not around it. What an encouraging message, hey? You're like, hey, can you tell me where those health and wealth churches are? I think I might want to go visit one of those next week. But see, there actually is something encouraging about this because if you are going through tribulation and hardship, which is pretty much universal, you know now that there is, there is meaning in this. There's purpose in this. But there's also encouragement from the promises of the scriptures, not just the promise that you will face hardship, go through it, but what God does in the midst of it. I want to look at that. That's how I want to end. I want to look at some of those promises. Um, the first thing is actually not really a promise, but it's just a word in that, in that phrase, that, that crystallized sermon in Acts 14, where Paul says, we must go through many hardships. We. Not, not I, 
must go. Not you individually on your own must go through, but we together. This is the gift of of being part of a body of Christ, is that as you inevitably go through those moments of flipsis in life, you don't go through it alone. You're together, you're tied together with other brothers and sisters, encouraging one another, praying for one another, supporting one another in this. That's why it's so tragic that this 20-something-year-old woman experiences even the slightest bit of flipsis and says, that's it, I'm cutting myself off from the church. She's cutting herself off from the very thing that God has given her to empower her through this. So we must go through, that's one thing. But that that leads to a, a promise in 2 Corinthians, a promise that we are not alone, not only in terms of walking with other human beings, but with Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in our troubles. Greek word? There it is. This is what God does. It's not just that Jesus goes through hardship ahead of us, but he goes through it with us. He's right there with us in the midst of it. And not only that, but he comforts us in it. He he rescues us from it. That's what Paul says to Timothy, that God rescued me from it. Revelation 12, the serpent is spewing out the stream to try to drown the woman. And we read that God causes the earth to open up and swallow the river. God is protecting his people. He's with us in the midst of the flipsis. He's rescuing us. He's comforting us. Here's another promise. That's that's a promise. That's something we've been singing about this. We're going to sing about it some more. That's a promise you can hold on to. He will comfort us in our troubles. Here's a promise from Romans 5. Paul says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Greek word? There it is. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, this is the promise that suffering, that flips us, actually shapes us and forms us, that God does something in us through it, that he forms in us the characteristics that are supposed to be associated with being a citizen in the kingdom of God. It's like exercise, right? You could just sit on your couch all day, not do anything, just eating like, you know, Pringles or whatever, just watching TV, and and that would be an easy life, right? That would be an easy life physically, but I guarantee you, your your body would reflect that (laughs) in in not, not such a great way. Exercise is deliberately going through hardship to strengthen your body, to shape and, and form it. And that's, that's what we're talking about spiritually. You go through hardship because by the grace of God, it actually forms in us the character of Christ Jesus who went through those hardships ahead of us. This is a promise that if we're following Jesus through those sufferings and afflictions, that he will produce in us hope. He will produce in us perseverance, resiliency, uh, his, his own character. Here's another promise from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. That's good news right there. God renews us in the midst of it. And Paul says, For our light and momentary troubles, 
are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. This is the promise that the Philipsis that we face as we follow Jesus is in the end light and momentary compared to the glory, the glory that will be revealed, that we will enter into. This is the promise of Acts 14 as well. We go through hardship to enter the glorious eternal kingdom of God. And in case you go, well, that seems really trivial to treat these afflictions as light and momentary. Think about who's writing it. Think about Paul. He knew, he knew something of this, right? Think about what happened to him in Lystra, Iconium, Pisidian Antioch, that long list of tribulations he had faced, that opposition that he had faced. He knew what he was talking about. He had faced what I don't think any of us have probably faced before, and he said it's light and momentary compared to the glory that is coming. This is the promise that the Thlipsis is nothing compared to the goodness and the, and the awe of God in his kingdom. One more, one more, one more. <laughs> one more promise. John 16, where Jesus says that you will have trouble. That's the promise, right? You will have flipsis. He says that, but he also says, I didn't read the whole passage before. He also says, I am telling you this so that you will have peace. Take heart, for I have overcome the world. See, whether you, you face affliction from the world, from the devil, from the flesh, you need to know that Jesus has overcome. He has won the victory. He was faithful to the very end, right to the cross. He was faithful, and then he overcame death through the resurrection, he is crowned as champion and as victor over all. And so as you encounter hardship, as you inevitably will, set your eyes on him. Because he promises that he has overcome the world. He promises to be with you, to comfort you, to encourage you, to shape in you his own character. And to bring you through that into his eternal glory of his kingdom. As he says in Hebrews 12, as we read in Hebrews 12, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Set your eyes on Jesus. Set your eyes on his promises, on his glory. He will bring you through this. He will do more than you could ask or imagine. I want to invite the worship team to come on up. And I, I want to, um, thought I'd maybe try this. There are some of you, I think, today, and you're like, yeah, I, I, I get that affliction and tribulation is a real thing. I'm in it right now. And maybe you are really discouraged. Maybe you're here this morning and you're feeling beat down, beat up by that affliction, by that flipsis. You're feeling discouraged and, and you're, you're, you feel like you're kind of running out of strength. You don't have to do this. And uh, maybe even if you're in that place, you're like, there's no way I'm raising my hand right now. But if that is you and you would like 
you, you want to be encouraged this morning. You know, you're, you're in that place of, of despair and discouragement because you're in the midst of it. I just want to invite you to raise your hand. And then I'm going to invite those who are around those people just to kind of stretch out their hands. And let's just, let's just pray. Let's pray and strengthen and encourage one another. That's, that's what we're supposed to do as a church, right? We're not supposed to be this people that have it all together and we're all just champions and victors. We come here not as a museum of saints, but as a hospital for sinners, for people to be built up and encouraged. So if you're in that place of feeling weary and tired and discouraged because of those tribulations, just wanna invite you to raise your hand right now. And I just want, if you see somebody who's raising their hand, just kind of stretch out your hand. And let's pray. Let's pray for those people. Let's strengthen and encourage one another this morning. I'm going to pray, but if you're around someone who's raising their hand and, and you know them, you want to pray for them, just go ahead and do that too. God, I thank you that the things that that we experience in this world were not unforeseen by you. They don't surprise you. And you warned us, you, you told us to anticipate, to expect these things. And so I thank you, God, that you are not a foreigner to this. You're not a stranger to this. You're not, you're not totally surprised by this. You are with us in it. You have told us that we would have trouble in this world. You have gone before us, Lord Jesus. You endured afflictions and sufferings for our sake. And you give us this promise, this promise that you are with us, this promise that you will shape in us your character, this promise that, that these afflictions are light and momentary compared to the glory that is coming. And so we pray for our brothers and sisters this morning, Lord, who are tired, who are discouraged, who are struggling, who feel like they're drowning. And we pray, Lord, that you would lift them up today. We pray that you would breathe into them in a fresh way, that they would set their eyes on you, that they would fix their, their hearts on your promises, that they would be willing, Lord, to open up about the struggle and that we as brothers and sisters would be able to encourage them and carry the weight together. You are so good. You are faithful. You speak and it comes to pass. We trust in you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us at the Bridge Church in this way. If God has spoken to you through his word, or if you're wanting to reach out to pray, or just wanting to know more about our church, access our website. There, you can connect with us and also have access to other contents. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. We believe that he is the hope of the world and wants to give you hope as well. We believe the best news ever has come in and through him. May you know him more and make him known today. We'd love to hear from you.